We're looking at John chapter 9 this morning, um, which you'll find on page 1075. Let me just say a word of prayer as we begin. Father, we pray that you'd be present with us this morning once again, and uh, that you would speak to us and that you would open our eyes uh, to the truth of who you are. Amen. As many of you will know, we've been uh, looking at John for a, for a few weeks now, and, and the vague, vague theme that we've been using to tie together the passages we've looked at is this idea of light and dark. At the beginning of John, you get this announcement that Jesus is the light come into the world, um, and, some, and there's that sense of those that have accepted the light and those that have rejected the light. So within this image of light, there is, we really fall into those two categories. Uh, those that accept uh, Jesus for who he is and those that don't. Um, and this is one of the themes that runs through the whole book of, of John. And he, he uses this theme throughout uh, uh, and its connected themes, including day and night and this morning, uh, sight and blindness. Um, they're all connected together. Um, and in all of it, he's really asking one big and very simple question of us. Um, And he spells it out for us in chapter 20. He tells us, actually, the whole reason why he's written this book is this. And he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this morning, we're looking at this story of healing uh, of a blind man with a story we'll come to uh, in a minute um, and, uh, and it's a story that Jesus uses as a metaphor for our own uh, sight gaining sight uh, from Jesus um, that our rejection of the light uh, as we've seen in the various passages we've looked at is rooted in a number of different things for some it is rooted in fear we saw that in John chapter 3 Um, that we do not come into the light for fear that our deeds will be exposed. Um, And uh, uh, that might be an entirely subconscious thing. For others, there's this sense of uh, of it being about pride. This is more the theme that we would have heard last week in John chapter 8, which you can listen back to uh, Richard's sermon on that. Um, Pride that um, we're good enough. Uh, We don't need some light to to help us see the way to God. Um, and, uh, um, and this morning, there's almost a different angle on it all, and that is that it's still pride, but it's, it's the pride that says, I know it all, uh, as, as a root for our rejection of God. Um, of course, these are very interconnected ideas that, that pride and insecurity are often very closely linked together, aren't they? And it is in our pride that we are unable or unwilling to challenge our assumptions uh, about the world. Um, And this passage, which we will get to shortly, um, is is fundamentally, as with all of these uh, passages about light and dark, about about this sense of, have you accepted or rejected the light? Um, It's this big, inescapable point uh, in the book of John. Um, and, and in some ways, I think John firstly understands that um, in, in the big picture sense of accepting and rejecting God. But, there, but I'd like us, because I know that most of us here this morning 
have already made that basic decision. We've accepted Jesus, we've accepted who he is, and we've chosen to trust him. Um, and I suppose the challenge for us um, is, is to not allow a thousand little mini distortions and assumptions and rejections uh, in our own understanding of who God is to actually change who it is that we're worshipping, uh, to get bored maybe with who God is. Um, that's the, maybe the challenge uh, for us, many of us this morning. Um, the, the previous chapter in chapter 8, as I said, Richard spoke on this last week, and I'd encourage you to have a listen. Um, things have somewhat come to a head, uh, and the religious leaders have finally, through, again, a thousand tiny little distortions of their sense of who God is, have rejected Jesus, that he is clearly not the Son of God. He is not the Christ. Um, and to, to the point that they have tried to stone him to death, um, but he's slipped away because he's not ready for that bit of the story yet. So Jesus has been officially denounced. And that's the context within which the story begins. So let's read the first few verses. We're going we're to read the, sermon, we're read the, the passage in three separate sections this morning throughout the service, th- throughout the sermon. So the first few verses. As he went along, this is Jesus. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Uh, but, he, uh, but others said, no, he only looks like him. Uh, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus uh, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and now and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he, he said. So the story opens with this uh, story of simple healing. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's something that really throws, puts the cat among the pigeons, as we will see as we look into the story, and creates this conflict between uh, this nobody blind beggar and the intelligentsia of, of Jerusalem. Um, and it starts with this idea that Jesus sees the blind man as he's walking along. And I'm not, I don't want to dwell there, but I just want you to point, just to point it out very simply, that sense that this man who is disabled and begging and uh, rejected by society uh, was seen by Jesus. And the disciples therefore saw him uh, alongside Jesus. I just want to point out that compassion that's in deep, so deeply embedded in who Jesus is that, that, that really begins the whole story. Then we get this rather odd question from the Pharisees. Oh, sorry, from the disciples. Was it this man or his parents that sinned that he was born blind? Um, now, 
deeply embedded in the ancient Near East is this idea that if, you, if there was suffering, there must be a sin directly connected to it. And in some ways, um, on one level, that kind of that gives us some explanation, doesn't it, for, for the suffering we see around us, if we can somehow turn it into a sense of justice by saying that they must have done something wrong. But it's an idea that Jesus firmly uh, rejects. Um, there is a sense in which our suffering, the suffering we experience, is embedded in a broken world, and that world is broken because of our wrongdoing and our rejection of God. So in a macro, indirect sense, uh, that might be true. But Jesus firmly rejects the idea that, that, that we can get specific about someone's suffering being a result of their own sin or their parents' sin. What we do with that on where we go for an explanation for the fact that this guy had, for no fault of his own, been suffering like this, Jesus doesn't actually give us an answer. Um, there's the, the, um, the phrase that he uses there um, in, uh, in verse uh, Three, that this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. It's, it's a lot less sort of causal than we hear it in English. Um, in, this, in this translation, there is potentially that sense less of cause and more of purpose that um, it's not that God made him blind in order for this story to be able to take place, but more that in his blindness, God was able to use that for his purposes. Having said that, one of the amazing things um, about the glory of coming to know Christ is that actually it's worth any of that. That the, the, that the glory of Christ in our lives, there is, there is no greater thing, there is no greater end than for God to be glorified in our lives. And I'm sure that as this man looked back on years and years of blindness and of begging, of rejection by society, he would have seen that as nothing compared to the glory of knowing Christ. Um, so although I, I, I want to be cautious of allowing us to think that God somehow decided that he was going to make this guy blind in order for this story to be able to happen, there is still that sense that if that was the, even if that had been the transaction, um, this, it would have all been worth it. Um, and, and this guy would not have object, objected to what he has got out of this story. That sense of knowing Christ, which we will come to um, one commentator put it this way. He said that many things in the Bible make no sense until God becomes your supreme value. There's that, there's that sense that some of these ideas are difficult because, uh, because in our world we're incredibly human-centric. Humanity sits at the center of our sense of what's good and bad. Um, and actually self often sits at the center of what's good and bad. But actually, it is God that should sit at that center of that. Let me read that quote again. Many things in the Bible make no sense until God becomes your supreme value. So the story carries on with this healing. Um, and uh, of course, his friends are rather amazed by this. And they take him to the Pharisees, as we'll see in a minute. And the cat among is truly set among the pigeons. We see this conflict that starts to grow. And uh, you'll see this when we read the, the main bit of the story in a minute. The conflicts and the, t- and the tension builds and builds. Um, and within it, you can see 
two very different trajectories in the way people respond to Jesus. And, and watch this as we read it through. How the blind man, or the formerly blind man, uh, his trajectory within the story goes one way, and the Pharisee's trajectory goes very much in a very different direction. Um, so let's read the main bit of the story. So we're picking up in chapter 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man explained, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. The Jews still, not did, did, still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this uh, for, because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you were this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So what I want to do is just look at the two trajectories that we have within the story. Firstly, the Pharisees. Their trajectory, their journey through the story starts with these uh, assumptions that they have, which mean that they reject who Jesus is. Um, And very simply, there's one one assumption which we've already seen in the end of chapter 8. It's this idea that Jesus can't possibly be who he claims to be. He is a heretical madman who thinks he's God. Um, and, and we see that in verse 22, it's, which is really a reference back to the story that we've just heard in chapter 8. Um, and secondly, uh, their other assumption is, is that anyone who is from God would keep their little Jewish rules. Um, note uh, around sort of verse 15 uh, when uh, they first are told about the fact that this miracle has happened, the thing that they're, that they're really perplexed by, 
that, that really grabs their attention isn't actually the fact that he's been made enabled to see. It's that this thing happened on the Sabbath and it involved making mud. Um, now, technically, what, what Jesus did was kneading like you would for making bread. And this, within the, the particular pharisaical world, uh, was against the Sabbath laws. Um, it was as if the Pharisees, because, because they viewed the law as this thing that, that you just had to keep. If you could keep the law, you'd be good enough for God. So you had to not break the law. Um, and therefore, to make sure that nobody broke the law, what they did is they built this hedge around the law uh, of other laws that would sort of give you a buffer zone to stop you from actually breaking the real law. Um, so, of course, it's a, that's a view of the law that is entirely based on fear, um, that we must at all costs not break the law. And, of course, inevitably, those extra, extra hedge of law effectively becomes as important within the society as the true law. The law really is about living uh, wisely in response to God's redemptive acts. One of the things that Richard talked about last week uh, was this idea that the law was given after the Exodus, has this very clear sense of order that God redeems his people uh, leads them out of slavery, and then he says, okay, this is the law. This is, what it, this, is the, this is how to live out your new identity as free people. What the Pharisees had done is it inverted that order. No longer was it the sense that we live out of uh, the redemption that God has already won for us. It's that sense that if we live well enough, then God, we will be near to God. God will accept us. So that's one of the things that had gone wrong in their view of the Sabbath. The other thing, um, more quickly, uh, that was going on with the Sabbath was that the Sabbath had, for them, become this way of, a source of pride. It was a, dis- it was a way of showing how distinct and superior the Jewish people were, which, of course, was the temptation in this world where they had become this puppet nation ruled from Rome. They were desperate for anything that would retain that sense of national pride, that sense of being God's special people. Um, so the Sabbath was one way. It became this enormous sense of pride for the people. But it was a pride that said, we are special, we are different, you are excluded. Um, and of course, the purpose of Sabbath was something very different. The purpose of Sabbath was healing and restoration. It was something that looked forward to the ultimate healing and restoration that uh, would happen when God's rest and our rest is brought to fruition in the new heaven and the new earth. So those are some big ideas. Do come and chat if you want me to tell you more about how I understand uh, that stuff. But my point in all of this is that Jesus actually didn't need to make the mud. Um, He was perfectly capable of fixing this guy up without using mud. But he did it in order to put the cat among the pigeons, in order to create this conflict, in order to show how deeply embedded the sense of rejection was within the Pharisees. Um, As the story of the Pharisees goes on, we see verse 19. um, uh, I'm on the wrong chapter. Sorry. Yep. In in verse 19, you get this sense that they decide, well, they better check the facts. Was this guy actually blind? That's a reasonable enough place to start if your assumptions are being broken. 
But what we find is that even though their their, their fact-checking leads to one conclusion, that he was blind, they can't accept that. Um, They effectively discount the parents that they've called in uh, to ask, and they assume that this this guy must be some sort of sinner. This is the idea that's uh, embedded in, in this phrase, give glory to God. That was kind of an idiom of, come on, admit your guilt, admit that you've gone wrong here. Um, admit that you're fooling us. Um, and eventually, amidst the determination of the man born blind, they become rather belligerent, don't they? And rather hot under the collar. Uh, verse 28. You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. And they, they introduce this idea about Moses, um, uh, which we won't bother to get into in any depth just because of time. But there's that sense that they try and grab hold of something that they can focus on that enables them not to look at the blindingly obvious fact that this extraordinary miracle has happened and that Jesus must be more than what they've rejected. Um, and until finally, verse 34, it all comes crashing down and they're just furious and you just have these accusations and denouncements and they throw him out. So that's the journey that the Pharisees go through within this story, all rooted in these assumptions that they just wouldn't let, hold, get, wouldn't let go of right at the beginning, that were in conflict with who Jesus really was and his claims. Let's look at the journey of the man born blind. Um, at the start of the story, he's sitting very quietly. <laughs> well, he's probably begging, but he certainly has no intention of getting involved in a story like this. Um, and some guy comes along and puts mud on his eyes and tells him to go and wash. And he does. I mean, you know, he's got nothing to lose. Why not? Um, go and give it a go. See what happens. Um, and he comes back able to see. Um, and then and we see how throughout the passage it slowly starts to dawn on him the full reality of what this means about who Jesus is and what has happened to him. Um, at the beginning, uh, verse uh, seven, sorry, verse eleven, um, he says, "Well, I was done by some some chap called Jesus. Um, he's probably heard about this guy. Jesus is a common name, but this particular Jesus might have gained a certain amount of infamy in the local area. That's all he knows. It's just this guy called Jesus. Uh, by seventeen, by verse seventeen, he says, "Well, he's a prophet." He's asked who he is, and he thinks about it, and he, can, he's, he knows his Old Testament well enough to hear echoes of the Old Testament prophets in it. And he says, okay, this guy's a prophet. Um, and then you get this, this, uh, this slight detour via the parents that gets thrown in. And I think, I think really uh, the main point with the parents is that they act as a foil to contrast the courage of this... Uh, this man with the lack of courage of his parents. They are terrified of what will happen if they admit what's going, you know, what seems to be so obvious. And the simple point is, and they feed him to the lions in, in this, which, and we could talk about what terrible parenting this is. But the point is, it's in contrast to the incredible courage that is starting to build in the man born blind. And it's courage that really is rooted in his desire to stick to the facts. Verse 25. Whether this guy's a sinner or not, I don't know. 
I know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. This wonderfully simple testimony. Um, but then, as it goes on, he starts to just become rather frustrated, doesn't he? he just, he's just frustrated about the Pharisees' unwillingness to, to, uh, to see what is right in front of them. Um, and, uh, and this frustration and starts to grow, and his confidence in this slow realization that's going on in, within him also starts to grow. Remember that he is an absolute nobody. He is a beggar from the streets. He's never been given a moment of, of, uh, of time by anyone. He has deeply embedded in himself a sense that he doesn't matter. And he is talking to the experts, the most respected people in the society. And yet he is willing to say some of these things. So deep is his frustration at the Pharisees. And of course, eventually, they throw him out. And then we come to the final little bit of the story, the quiet after the storm. Jesus re-enters the scene and we see that the man is dusting himself off, having been thrown out, and the Pharisees are rubbing their hands with glee. Um, And we have verse 35 and following. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, Your guilt remains. So the whole story gets inverted. We've been thinking that the Pharisees are the ones that get to judge this. But actually it turns out, no, that's not the case at all. Jesus is the one who gets to judge this situation. Um, And we see that judgment is entirely on the basis of our own judgment of Jesus. Um, There is that sense that any... any, uh, any, any question that demands a simple one, or one way or the other response has embedded in it the idea of judgment. Um, and the verdict for the Pharisees is very simple, that they are guilty. Um, their intellectual pride, their unwillingness to break with their own assumptions, has led them down this path to a thorough rejection of Jesus. Whereas for the, for the man born blind, there's a very different result. His understanding continues to build this this idea of the son of man do you believe in the son of man Jesus finally explains this last piece of the puzzle for him that the son of man is an idea embedded in the old testament Uh, the one like a son of man who who is given authority and power over all the nations and is worshipped forever it's a massive claim one that Jesus has developed throughout this book chapter 3 there's that idea that the son of man will be lifted up like a snake in the desert if you want explanation on that go back to the the chapter three sermon Um, but jesus clarifies this invitation that he is the son of man and he is to be believed in and of course that idea of now you've seen him jesus points out that that the metaphor this idea that uh 
Jesus, that the man can now see the physical Jesus in front of him. Jesus invites him into this spiritual insight. You can also see here the Son of Man. Um, This is a, a story of a man who starts knowing nothing and slowly pieces things together and in the grace of God comes to a full realization of who Jesus is and ends the story wrapped around his feet. And it's also a story of some very proud people who have a set of assumptions about who God is and who they are and refuse to give up on them. And it leads them down this path to total rejection of who Jesus is. And I suppose it's, we come back to where we started. It's that question for all of us. Which, which one are we going to be? Not just in the big picture sense of have you accepted or rejected Jesus in a, you know, as, a, as, a, as a long-term basic uh, posture in your life, If that's not something that you've done, I'd really encourage you to trust in Jesus. Um, And do come and chat afterwards about what that might mean. Um, Listen to the podcasts that we've we've had so far. But for many of you, um, it might be that uh, you just need to ask the question, what are the little assumptions that might be creeping in to your sense of who God is that might be leading you away from the full reality that might be leading you away from the sense of wonder, of first recognition that we see in the man born blind by the end of the story, wrapped around Jesus' feet. Let's uh, just have a moment of quiet, um, and then we'll sing again. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to break through whatever it is that prevents us from seeing you for who you are, Um, that we uh, would be able to look you full in the face, that we would wonder and marvel at that, and end up wrapped around your feet. Um, You are our saviour. Amen.